Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Hey, it's Bridget. So when I'm not making There Are No Girls on the Internet, I'm also the host of a podcast called Beef, where we're serving up the juiciest historical rivalries that you've never heard of. And I'm so pleased to share that Beef is a finalist for three Signal Awards. So could you do me a huge favor and vote for Beef to win Best Writing, Best Emerging Podcast, and Best Host? Just go to ncpodcasts.com slash signal. Voting is open until October 5th. Thank you so much. It really means a lot. There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. I am here with my producer, Joey. Joey, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. Hey, Bridget. Thanks for having me. So I think we should just get right into it because everybody on Twitter is talking about Linda Yaccarino's performance at the big tech conference, Code. Oh my gosh. Have you seen or heard anything about this? I have not. So usually we do a segment about like, oh, what's Elon Musk done now? What's Elon up to? Uh, This is really what's Linda Yaccarino up to? So Linda Yaccarino, for folks who don't know, was named as the new CEO of Twitter a while ago. I would say it kind of seems like Linda is not as publicly involved as you might expect a CEO to be. Like, 
it seems like Elon Musk will say something and she like a bi- like announce a big change and she won't even like like acknowledge it or anything like that. So like the vibe has been like, is she really in charge? Is she really the CEO? When she came on board, she definitely was getting that treatment where she was talking about how she really loves a challenge. Like she's the person that you call when you want someone who is like really going to turn a ship around. And she was using a lot of language that I really quickly recognize as setting up a woman to come in and like clean up the mess of a male CEO, a male leader. Like I heard a lot of like, this is someone who really wants to be seen as someone who is really like capable and going to come in and do a good job. Well, her performance at the tech conference code did not go well and is not really doing a good job of aligning with what I think is her like public myth-making around herself. So first, Kara Swisher interviewed Yoel Roth, former head of trust and safety at Twitter. Uh, Roth is someone who I've seen talked about in some ways that I would say are not exactly accurate. You might remember that Roth was working at Twitter in the pre-Elon Musk days and then stuck around once Elon Musk took over. I've seen him described as a whistleblower, but I really push back against that framing because when Elon Musk took over Twitter, he was fine to go along with all the practices that Elon Musk was was putting forth. There are other folks who left Twitter when Elon Musk took over who I would say like were actual genuine whistleblowers who were blowing the whistle on Twitter's internal practices once Elon Musk took over. I would not put Yoel Roth in that camp. You might remember that Yoel Roth was like, on board until Musk very publicly turned on him. Musk kind of publicly insinuated that Roth, who is openly gay, is a sexual threat to children. And after this happened, Roth and his family had to flee their home for their own safety. So I will say this, had that been me, had Elon Musk taken over my company and then publicly smeared me as a threat to children and that I had to like leave my home, and I was invited on a big platform to talk about Twitter, I can just imagine what I would have said. Like, I, it would have come up. I probably would have had a lot to say. However, Roth really just kept it professional. He talked about how there had been a rise in hate speech on Twitter since Elon Musk took over, saying, by any measure, it is worse, except by Twitter's own measure, which is basically what we've all been saying all along. Uh, so even though Roth just stuck to, like, clear stats about Twitter, like, talking about the platform... Linda Yaccarino seemed very rattled by him being there. Linda was interviewed right after Roth and, to be honest, just came off really unprepared. And it didn't do a ton to, you know, address concerns that, like, Elon Musk is still running the show and, like, you know, running Twitter off of his whims without really consulting her. Uh, Listen for yourself. Elon Musk just announced a new monthly fee for users. Yep. And my question for you is, do you want to start charging all users of X, as he said, and how many users do you think you will lose as a result? Can you repeat? Elon Musk announced you're moving to an entirely subscription-based service. Yeah. Nothing free on, about using X. Do you, Did he say we were moving to it specifically or is thinking about it? He said that's the plan. Yeah. So did he consult you before he announced that? We talk about everything. Man, I I guess she sounds very PR trained. It sounds like the <laughs> like if I were the PR person for Twitter slash X, whatever you want to call it right now, I would be like, yeah, let's let's you know, do you say it or is it just like an idea that's out there or thinking about it? Like I yeah, that that's so PR speak. 
So Yaccarino then tried to give some big, impressive number about how advertisers were returning to the platform, but then those numbers were refuted by external analysis. Then, when asked about the current rise in anti-Semitic content on Twitter, including from her boss, Elon Musk, according to business insider's Ben Bergman, she apparently looked down at her watch and said, I need to leave to catch a flight. And that's just like, I can't imagine a more awkward thing to say. Like, uh... I think someone's calling me in the other room. I gotta go. Yeah, no, that's like, like, oh, look at my wrist. I gotta go. That is, (laughs) there's no way that's a real excuse. Yeah, so of all the things that you could say, I feel like that's the most awkward. Like, you know that emoji, that awkward emoji that has the curly mouth that's just like, oh, that was basically everybody's face in the audience because it was so awkward. People have described this as like a scene from Arrested Development because that's how awkward it was. Now, I think this is really just an instance of like, you work for a company, you have you have fired or let go most, if not all, of your comm staff. The person who like is at the very top of the company, the owner, Elon Musk, is someone who is very erratic. I think that like this is what you get when all of those conditions are, are met. And so some folks, some like pretty big name tech folks accused tech journalist Kara Swisher, you know, the organizer of the conference, of sandbagging Yaccarino by booking Roth as a surprise guest. But this is not really what happened. Swisher confirmed that Yaccarino knew that Roth would be speaking and was even given the option to pick whether she wanted to speak before him or after him. And that apparently Twitter like decided that they wanted to have the last word. So it's not like this was a total surprise. According to to Kara Swisher, she texted Linda Yaccarino personally and she had about 12 hours notice that like, hey, this person's going to be speaking too. Yeah, like how how you were describing Roth before and this isn't, like a dig on him I'm sure whatever um but it seems like he's like the most like mild sort of like center of the field person you could ask mm-hmm. to talk about this because again it sounds like yeah he didn't leave he was sort of like I'm just gonna keep doing my job and see what happens <laughs> and um yeah if you have a marginalized identity you will be targeted for that regardless of how you know much of a team player you are and I, again this is like a good example of that but yeah it sounds like he's sort of you don't really know which direction he could go with this and yeah that's a good way to describe him and honestly to me like I said if Elon Musk had targeted me for my identity and put my kids at risk, you can believe that when I got on a stage, I wouldn't be talking about the platform stats, right? So, like, part of me is like, well, this is, like, a testament to the fact that Roth is not going personal, uh, that he's just, like, sticking to the stats. I-, I completely agree with your assessment of who he is in this situation. And I was pretty surprised to see a lot of big names in tech media, people like Jason Calacanis from the All In podcast, which is like a, like probably the number one tech podcast in the world, like every fucking week. I have no problem with that, but like it is what it is. And a, a business reporter at Axios, they were on Twitter saying that like, oh, Linda Yaccarino got sandbagged by Kara Swisher. This is so unprofessional. And Kara Swisher is never going to be able to book high profile tech leaders for this conference. And like this conference is really going to be not as big of a deal if this is how they're going to treat their their high profile guests. And I really need to like push back on that, that framing because, you know, it, I, I think it really it's one of those situations where it's like, wow, you all have so little integrity as tech 
tech leaders and, and journalists, people who are supposed to be informing the public, it, you could not be making it clearer that what you actually care about, what you actually value is access. This is something that Paris Marks, uh, the host of Tech Will Not Save Us, that podcast, speaks to quite a bit, which is like, these people could not have made it any clearer that they don't care about holding tech leaders accountable. They don't care about asking the kinds of questions that are actually going to help us, the public, understand what's going on. What they care about is access. And it's not a journalist's job to make Linda Yaccarino look good. It's not a journalist's job to, you know, play nice with Linda Yaccarino or any other tech leader and, like, make them feel comfortable and make them look good and give them like, like they're not in PR, they're journalists. And so I was really surprised how quickly these journalists revealed that they don't care about that, that all they care about is like, ooh, is this really going to like hurt Kara Swisher's ability to book big guests? Uh, and that I, I found that to be really telling. You know, Linda Yaccarino is, is running one of the most important tech platforms in the world. It's not any journalist's job to make her look good. It's a journalist's job to ask her questions that are going to be clarifying for us, the public, and to hold her accountable for the things that she says and the things that she does. Right. And even if it wasn't Linda Yaccarino herself, like she's the CEO of a company that's owned by Elon Musk, who has used that platform to spew just straight up Nazi shit and yeah apparently target a gay man in a way that is very much rooted in homophobia like it it totally makes sense it's so weird to see like how accountability is like framed because yeah like you said this seems like a situation where she needs to be held accountable for what's happening at her company for what's happening in the name of her company and yeah like asking the most basic questions is apparently too much I don't know. Poor Linda Yaccarino. Her and her, you know, billion dollar company. So sad. They're being bullied by mean journalists. (laughs) I almost see like a little bit of like sexism here. Like I think it's, I think it's, I think it's important to like not, I try really hard when I'm talking about Linda Yaccarino to make sure that I'm not trafficking in some sort of like internalized misogyny. But the way that people are talking about her, it almost swings back around. And it's like, we're not talking about your best friend giving you a heads up that your ex might be at the party they're planning. This is somebody who is running one of the most powerful, the CEO of one of the most powerful tech companies in the world. Where is this idea coming from that she can't handle it if one of her, if a former staffer is there presenting his perspective as a former staffer. It almost seems like insulting to her this assumption that, like, she needs more notice than other tech CEOs that have gone to this conference, that somebody's being added to the lineup. And that if Yoel Roth got up there and spoke his piece about what he saw at Twitter, that that's going to somehow rattle her. It, it almost feels like a, like a weird kind of, like, a weird assumption that I just, I don't know where it's coming from. And I don't see a lot of other tech leaders getting these same kinds of like assumptions that they they will fall, they will simply fall apart if they are asked to speak after somebody who has presented an alternative perspective than their own. I thought her whole thing, she's been saying this whole time that Twitter is this place where, oh, you you need to be able to to listen when someone's got an opposing view. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't run away from it when someone's got a different opinion. But yet here are all these people saying, oh, well, Linda Yaccarino shouldn't have to listen to somebody's opposing opinion. And if she does so, it is it is reasonable for her to completely fall apart and shit the bed. I I I have a lot of questions about it. Yeah. 
a big part of feminism is being able to acknowledge when women mess up too and women are benefiting from like, you know, classism, anti-Semitism, general sort of fascist uh, tendencies, you know, in this case. And uh, yeah, like Linda Yaccarino took this job knowing who Elon Musk was and knowing what this company had kind of positioned itself as at that point. So it's sort of like, I don't know. It it feels like we're falling back into the whole like girl boss era where it's mm-hmm. like it's okay if she does bad stuff because she's she's doing it as a woman and it doesn't matter that other women are going to get brutalized by the content that is produced by this company or whatever. I, it's it's weird. It is a very weird thing to be watching. It reminds me of this meme I see often that I think about all the time. It's not exactly like well, whatever. The meme is, I don't support all women. Some of you bitches are very dumb. <laughs> and I always think about that of like, yeah, like this is, she shat the bed out there and it really matters. It doesn't just matter from like a business perspective. It matters for all of us. Like to put this in context, this comes just days after a new study from the European Union that said that Twitter is the number one biggest source of disinformation when compared to other social media platforms, with Spain, Poland, and Slovakia deemed as countries with the highest risks. The EU's Values and Transparency Commissioner Vera Jourova warned Elon Musk, saying, you have to comply with the hard law. We'll be watching what you're doing. And what did he do in response? Well, Elon Musk cut Twitter's election integrity and disinformation team, despite pledging that he would not do that, and removed the election disinformation reporting tool, even though we're like, what, a couple hundred days out of an election here in the United States? And so this stuff really matters. Like, how this platform is run really makes, really matters to people. Um, On Friday, the day that this podcast comes out, Twitter's new privacy policy goes into effect, which allows Twitter to take a lot more data from us, including our employment information, our job information, maybe read our DMs, our biometric data, and of course, use all of that data that they take from us to train their AI and a whole lot more. All of this after Twitter's former head of security turned actual whistleblower went before the Senate and testified that Twitter is misleading the public about the platform's extreme and egregious security deficiencies. So all of this is to say, that it really matters how Twitter is being run, not just because it's this big company, but because it really matters for global election integrity and for our own personal security. So this is not a business story. This is not a story about like, is Kara Swisher going to be able to get big, important guests on her show? Or will the Code Conference continue to be really big and important? It's not a story about whether or not this journalist was like nice to Linda Yaccarino. Our global democracy is at risk. And these people are just talking about like whether or not code is going to be able to book guests it's because a journalist asked her about it. Like the conversation is so deeply unserious. And I feel like we are watching tech journalists fail us in real time and be really public and open about it. Like, they don't even have the good sense to not publicly go out and say, like, oh, the most important thing is access. And because they asked Linda Yaccarino hard questions, they're blowing that access. The most important thing that matters to me as a tech journalist. Like, it is so deeply unserious and they're putting us all at risk and not even having the good sense to, like, not say that publicly voluntarily. Yeah, I think coming from within the journalism industry in particular and like having that perspective this is really interesting because it kind of reminds me of like and you you mentioned the election which this doesn't directly have to do with the election but you know again twitter is going to be a big platform for that 
Um, this reminds me of back in 2016 when Trump was elected and there was sort of this like conversation, I think, within the journalism industry and within newsrooms about like what's the media's responsibility and you know, what's the difference between holding people accountable and like getting both sides or like hearing all the sides and like this this seems like we're falling back into that idea of like getting all the sides and hearing letting everybody just speak their mind without without question is more important than like actually holding people accountable and actually asking people the hard questions about like their actual policies that are going to affect people yeah, that that's that's concerning to me too. And like, again, like this doesn't directly have to do with the election, but Twitter is going to be a big platform when it comes to mm-hmm. the election. And are we going to see that sort of cycle again, where people are just like, yeah, we're we're going to just hear all the sides and not hold anybody accountable because that never ends well. Yeah, I worry that folks in media have not really learned a lot of hard truths. So we will see. Let's take a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls code nogirls. And we're back. 
So we have a little update for you. Last week during our newscast, we told you that Andrew Tate's MLM scam app called The Real World, formerly called Hustlers University, was taken off of Google's Play Store for being a predatory pyramid scheme that charged subscribers $50 a month and offered them the chance to make millions through these like very scammy sounding courses on things like copywriting and cryptocurrency and also prompted users to share Andrew Tate's content on social media. At the time of publishing our episode, the app was still available on Apple's App Store. Well, right after our episode went live on Friday of last week, Apple joined Google in taking Tate's app down from the App Store. Thank you, Apple. Tate's people say that they are appealing both of these decisions. But for now, it is good news that that Tate is being cut from this income stream that just really just takes advantage of young people. Yeah. First of all, adding on to last week's kind of discussion of this to be the third person now on this podcast to say, I, I don't know why copywriting is listed in there because it's not <laughs> <laughs> also oh my god experience with that uh you do not make billions of dollars yeah listener sarah said the same thing as a like what is going on with copywriting people don't make millions and millions of dollars from copywriting and him promising people that they're going to make that is truly a wild claim to be making on his app yeah I think generally media, if if a company is telling you that like a media related job is going to make you a lot of money, that's probably not true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a rule of thumb. Yeah. No, I that's good to hear. I feel like this whole Andrew Tate saga, this is, this is one of those things where it's like this whole thing that's going on with Andrew Tate has felt very big and like very difficult to address and it's like there's just so much so much harm he's causing but this is like an example of like how any sort of action is good and I think I don't know I think it's it's easy to get sort of caught up in all of the bad stuff that's coming out of this but it is it's good to hear one one good things happen because because of you know people's advocacy and people trying to combat this stuff Yeah, I take my W's where I can get them, even the small ones. And if folks are interested to hear more about Tate and the sort of ecosystem of manosphere grifters that have popped up around him, folks like Just Pearly Things and Sneeko, all of your mixed bag of misogynistic right-wing extremist online grifters, check out our episode of There Are No Girls on the Internet that came out this week with Justin Horowitz, an extremism researcher at Media Matters. He breaks down all of it. So if folks want to know more about Tate, what he's doing, and the impact that it has on all of us, definitely check out this week's episode. So over in Texas, Yelp, the review website that is mostly known for, I guess, like reviewing restaurants and coffee shops, well, Yelp is preemptively suing Texas to ensure that the site can continue to tell users that crisis pregnancy centers, also known as CPCs, listed on their site do not provide abortions or abortion referrals. So if you're unfamiliar with a crisis pregnancy center, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, always have trouble saying that word, CPC is a term used to refer to certain facilities that represent themselves as legitimate reproductive health care clinics providing care for pregnant people, but actually aim to dissuade people from accessing certain types of reproductive care, including abortion care and even contraceptives options. So currently, Yelp puts a label on crisis pregnancy centers that reads, quote, this is a crisis pregnancy center. Crisis pregnancy centers do not offer abortions or referrals to abortion providers. This is just like 
fact-based information that is just like a fact. I don't think that any CPC would object to that, that they do not offer abortions or referrals for abortions. That is just like a true fact about their services. But Yelp suspects that Texas is going to sue them to prevent them from applying this label. So they are preemptively suing Texas first. According to CNN, in a complaint filed Wednesday in San Francisco federal court, Yelp said it is suing the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton preemptively to head off a lawsuit it anticipates from his office as soon as Friday that may seek to bar Yelp from applying its label to crisis privacy centers. Uh, If the name Attorney General Ken Paxton of Texas sounds familiar to you, That is because he just got finished facing a very serious impeachment threat from his own party for corruption. Now, he wasn't impeached. He he won that. He won that battle. But he is still facing a felony fraud case and an FBI investigation for securities fraud. So Ken Paxton has a lot going on. Like, you know, if I were Ken Paxton, I'd probably be focused on that. But this is what he's doing instead. Yeah, that's so crazy. Like, just from hearing you explain that they're not doing anything illegal in fact they're just yeah like they're they're just explaining what the service is which is what you're supposed to do if you're a service and you want to get business but you know i i, I it's almost like they don't want us to know that they don't have abortions and they actually do other things crazy I thought false advertising was illegal, but uh, I, apparently not in this case. I, yeah. Okay, so what's interesting about what you just said is that back in February, Paxton went after Yelp for putting a different label on crisis pregnancy centers. Their initial label described crisis pregnancy centers as, quote, typically providing limited medical services and may not have licensed medical professionals on site, which is also true. But Paxton objected to that back in February. And so when Yelp changed their label to read what I read before about how crisis pregnancy centers do not offer abortions or referral for abortions, Paxton himself commended that disclosure as, quote, accurate in a press release that reads, Yelp has agreed to remove its misleading label of crisis pregnancy centers and replace it with an accurate description. So just as you said, right, that like Paxton himself said, oh, well, this new label, this label is accurate. But now he is still coming after Yelp for this label that he himself in February said was accurate and was fine. So the way that crisis pregnancy centers work is that they really they they really take advantage of like scammy SEO practices to prey on people many of whom are in desperate situations to confuse them with inaccurate information. Crisis pregnancy centers, their whole mission is to basically waste the time of somebody who is pregnant to create an intentional delay that will delay them in getting an abortion in an attempt to trigger term restrictions that will prevent them from getting abortion care altogether. So Yelp's lawsuit is asking the court to affirm that its labeling of crisis pregnancy centers was not misleading and that it was an exercise of constitutionally protected speech. It is also asking the court to block Texas from suing over the labels in the future. And I think, yeah, it's just another example of the ways that like abortion is a tech issue and that if you are trying to talk about technology, but you're not, you're doing so in a way that does not talk about abortion care, then you're not fully talking about technology because abortion is a tech issue. You know, tech companies should really be in the business of providing accurate information about people's health. And a lot of times we know that they don't. So in this case, when Yelp is actually trying to help people get accurate information about, you know, crisis pregnancy centers, it's really sad that states like Texas are stepping in to prevent them from doing that. Yeah. And again, it's like it's not like Yelp is doing anything that's illegal. 
I use Google Maps all the time because like I never know where I am. Um, but I mean, one thing that like I rely on a lot is like the descriptions of places that I'm going to matching the place that I'm actually going to. And it is really frustrating when they don't. You shouldn't be hiding under the guise of medical care if that's not what you're doing. But yeah, I, I yeah, wow, it's it's scary. Everything that's happening in Texas with this is is terrifying. And again, all the support to like abortion activists, reproductive rights activists in Texas. You guys are like, I admire the work you all are doing so much. So important. Absolutely. Like if you've got some spare coin and you're looking for a good home for it, donate to an abortion fund because Lord knows they're doing important work and they could use it. And I think this thing in Texas, I really think that Paxton is just trying to do a stunt to take away from his corruption investigation. I think that, like, he is newly back from almost being impeached by his own party. And I think that he is just, like, looking for some big grandstanding stunt. And he already confirmed that the way that Yelp is describing CPCs is accurate. So it's like, we're visiting this now. It just seems like a stunt. And I think it just goes back to the idea that a lot of these extremists, they don't have a lot to offer their citizens other than stunts and grandstanding. And I think that's exactly what this is. Yeah, it's almost like the backlash against reproductive rights and trans people and all of this is just an attempt to get more votes. But, you know, Mm -hmm. it's... So folks might be familiar with Wirecutter, the New York Times' vertical where they rate and review tech gadgets. Wirecutter had been giving Wise, the security camera system, positive reviews for six years, but all of that changed this week because Wirecutter announced that they were pulling their recommendations for Wise from all their site's guides. Why? Well, because Wirecutter explains that on September 8th, The Verge reported an incident in which Wise customers were able to access live video from other users' cameras through the Wise web portal. When Wirecutter reached out to Wise for details, a representative characterized the incident as small in scope, saying they believe no more than 10 users were affected. So that's not great. Like, even if it's only 10 people, strangers being able to access your security camera and, like, see what you're doing is, like, pretty bad. But here's the kicker. Other than one post on its user-to-user online forum, Wise Communities, and communications to those that they say were affected, the company has not reached out to Wise customers, nor has it provided meaningful details about the incident. Wirecutter writes, We believe Wise is acting irresponsibly to its customers. As such, we've made the difficult but unavoidable decision to revoke our recommendation of all Wise cameras until the company implements meaningful changes to its security and privacy procedures. The concern is not that Wise had a security incident. Just about every company or organization in the world will probably have to deal with some sort of security trip up, as we've seen with big banks, the military, Las Vegas casinos, schools, and even Chick-fil-A. The greater issue is how this company responds to a crisis. With this incident and others in the past, it is clear that WISE has failed to develop the sorts of robust procedures that adequately protect its customers the way they deserve. Damn. Yeah, that's scary. I Yeah, I feel like security cameras, cameras in general, that's just such a sensitive issue. It's like if you have any, like, if there's any break of that privacy, that should be notified to people that have the cameras that you sell. Exactly. So I need to make this really clear. This is very unusual, right? We talk about a lot of companies who behave in ways that are irresponsible, but this is irresponsible even by like 
irresponsible company standards. Wirecutter spoke to other folks in the privacy space, including Jen Kaltrider, program director at Mozilla's Privacy Not Included, whose work we've talked about on the show before. All of the folks they spoke to agree that it is completely unusual and unacceptable that Wise did not reach out to their customer base proactively and never said anything about how they are planning to prevent these issues in the future. And this is not even the first time that Wise has had issues like this. In March 2022, a Bitdefender study showed that Wise took nearly three years to fully address specific vulnerabilities that affected all three models of Wise cameras. Eventually, they did alert customers and told them that their, you know, their security, like that model of security camera was no longer safe and that they should not be using them. And if they did keep using them, they were doing so like at their own risk. So like you were saying, Joey, I would pretty much never advocate for someone putting an additional camera in their home that they didn't need. Um, But if you when you do like that is a trust relationship, as you were saying, that you're entering into with the company. Right. You need to know that if that trust is broken, that the company is going to handle it in a way that is responsible. Like that's the only way that having a camera in your house makes any sense at all is if the company is like acting in a way that really makes it clear that they understand that that, that you're putting their tr- your trust in them. As Wirecutter points out, the fundamental relationship between smart home companies and their customers is founded on trust. No company can guarantee safety and security 100% of the time, but customers need to be confident that those who make and sell these products, especially security devices, are worthy of their trust. Wise's inability to meet these basic standards puts its customers and its devices at risk and also casts doubt on the smart home industry as a whole. So Wirecutter actually listed out some specific steps that Wise would need to take in order for them to consider, like reconsider looking at their products in the future. It's like very basic stuff, honestly, like reaching out to all customers proactively if there is a breach and describing the issue in detail, including what steps are being taken to prevent it from happening again. Like to me, it sounds like very basic stuff. And I also think that it is a pretty big step for an outlet that like Wirecutter that most folks probably know for like gadget reviews to take this kind of action. And honestly, maybe it should be more commonplace. Like even if you're mostly a review outlet, it is still sort of service oriented tech journalism for regular people to inform their purchasing decision making. Right. And so I think it's nice to see an outlet taking that responsibility seriously and using that as a, as a way to advocate for a tech company just being accountable to the people who are buying them, buying their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- rare win for the New York Times, I guess, or I New York Times property. Um, Bridget, did you ever watch? <laughs> there was a, like, Disney Channel movie that I watched when I was a kid that was called, like, Smart Home. Home. Yeah. Smart House. You know I watched Smart House. <laughs> you said the word Smart Home, and I was like, <laughs> I think that's why. Now, I, I think I'm realizing now because I've always been somebody that, like, even with, like, computer cameras have been very like anxious about and I know most of that is whatever I I in theory it's safe but yeah I think I think that's how it started I think it was because of that movie which uh this just goes to prove that Disney Channel was right apparently <laughs> but yeah no that's that's so scary though I I've never had a security camera like that in a place that I've lived but I know like I had friends growing up that like had that in their houses and that's scary. That is, that's really scary. What could happen with that? Yeah. So first of all, like Disney Channel, conti- Disney Channel originals continue from like 
the 2000s continue to be prophetic, like it is written. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's our our origin story of paranoia around certain technology. <laughs> I think it is. I think I'm connecting the dots now. I'm like that's that's how it started. Yeah. And it's funny because like I, I'm not like like for my life having things like a Google Home or like a security camera, it doesn't make sense for my life personally. But I get that people's security needs might be different. Like my parents have, I actually don't know what they use, but they have cameras in every room in their house because my dad is disabled and sometimes has like bad falls. And so it's like a a way to be like, oh, well, if I'm downstairs, I want to be able to see, if my mom is downstairs, she wants to be able to be able to see what my dad is doing and vice versa because they're older folks who live in a big house. And so I'm not, you know, if if having devices that have cameras in them in your life makes sense for your lifestyle, like that, do what you got to do. As Wirecutter, I think, rightly points out, you should be able to do that and trust that you are going to get the information that you need to be able to be you know, deciding how you what what role you want this technology to play in your life. And I feel like what wise is not being a good actor to allow consumers to really do that. More after a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. 
Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. Let's get right back into it. So we've talked a little bit before about the threats that deep fakes pose, digitally rendered images of people often depicting them in sexual situations or meant to be used for political deception. Now, new legislation is trying to combat the harm posed by deep fakes. Representative Yvette Clark, who represents parts of Brooklyn, introduced new legislation in the House that is meant to curb the harm of deep fakes, saying this bill is meant to take us into the 21st century and establish a baseline so we can discern who is intending to harm us. Clark said that the Deep Fakes Accountability Act would provide prosecutors, regulators, and particularly victims with resources, like detection technology, that Clark believes they need to stand up against the threat of nefarious deep fakes. This bill would require all creators of deep fakes to include content credentials, which means the origins and entire history of a piece of content, including how it was captured and how it's been changed. Under this legislation, online platforms that host generative AI content would also be required to display the origins of that content. Under this legislation, users who fail to label malicious deepfakes would face a criminal penalty, including prison time and fines. So this category would encompass deepfakes related to sexual content, criminal content, incitement of violence, and foreign interference in elections. Now, I've looked into this legislation a little bit. It does seem like there is some potential concern that the scope might be a bit too narrow because it really focuses on, like, people. So like deep fakes that depict images of people. But what about when a deep fake does not depict a person? Like recently faked AI generated images of the Pentagon on fire went viral and caused a disruption where I live here in DC. And so I have, I have read that there is concern that this legislation is too narrow and that it does not account for those kinds of deep fakes that, are, that do not depict a specific person. Yeah, that also, it concerns me that they're being very liberal with, like, sexual content because, and, like, I, I don't know, this might be a little bit more extreme of a take, but I feel like if you're making AI content of somebody that's, like, sexual without their permission, that's bad. That is wrong. I don't think that should be allowed, like, period. Um, so I don't know. It, it feels sort of like concerning that they're just sort of like you have to label this, but mm-hmm. it can still exist. Yeah, that's another. I mean, like I just knowing what I know about, you know, the way that platforms will sometimes add like, oh, this is misinformation or like get the realist or like if you ever scroll Facebook and it's like, oh, this post has been shown to be misleading. Those are great. And I like think that platforms should be doing that. But if I'm being honest, there is a lot of research that suggests that people are not really like looking at those because social media platforms move so quickly that people are not always clicking in to be like, oh, this is here's some context for this. And so I'm concerned that the way that the internet moves, the speed at which the internet moves, I think it's possible that deep fakes could travel in a way because people are not necessarily looking at the context or looking at the label because of the speed at which social media platforms tend to move. And so it is concerning. Like, I I, I think that something needs to be done about the threat of deep fakes. Like, I already know, I'm sure we've talked about this on the show, that 
deep fakes have the potential to really disrupt our democracy. And it's definitely going to be people who are traditionally marginalized, who are disproportionately facing that reality. So like, you know, women, LGBTQ folks, people of color, um, that's just a reality. And so like, I do think something needs to be done. Uh, and it, it's also kind of hard to believe that right now there is no national legislation specifically addressing deep fakes or the deceptive uses of generative AI. Earlier this month, uh, technology executives did have a closed-door meeting with senators to discuss potential government regulation. But right now, there is no national regulation of this. Um, And I do want to say that this legislation is being introduced by Representative Clark. And Clark is somebody that I've actually been really keeping my eye on. Y'all might recall that during the TikTok hearings, we talked a lot about some of the stuff that came up from lawmakers, the questions that they asked. Clark had some legitimately very good questions about whether TikTok's moderation policies were biased toward black and brown creators and whether the platform was suppressing abortion content. Um, I remember like she was somebody who was like, oh, she's like asking very substantive questions that clearly reflect her constituents in a way that I thought was like very refreshing. Um, She was also working to regulate AI before doing so was cool. Way back when, in 2019, she worked with Senators Wyden and Cory Booker to introduce the Algorithmic Accountability Act, a bill that would require companies to conduct impact and privacy assessments when they use automated decision-making tools. And so we will definitely keep an eye on this legislation, how it moves, um, what happens with it. But yeah, it's sort of hard to believe that there is no national legislation addressing the threat of deep fakes or deceptive uses of AI and yeah, it's it's uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, it 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 definitely feels like there should be. I feel like that should be covered under like libel or something too, where it's like. I, and and again, I'm I'm not a lawyer. I haven't <laughs> looked at the concrete laws that exist around this, but it feels like an image and an image's like impact on somebody's reputation that should have the same impact as like something that's spoken about somebody. But yeah, like I'm it's it's good to hear that somebody is doing something about this and somebody who it seems like has a history of of actually addressing tech issues and not just, you know, selling out to the sort of heritage foundation uh, <laughs> version of what the internet should be. That's a refreshing take for once. But and again, like you said, this is a very narrow legislation, but it's a step in the right direction and I guess that's good to hear. Yeah. And to your point that you were making earlier, I think this is a situation that really shows that sometimes our technology progresses quicker than our laws can keep up. And so I'm I'm interested to see if we get to a place where our laws actually can be somewhat more aligned with the realities of the technology that we're that's facing us today. OK, so important question for you, Joey. Did you go for, first of all, are you a Swifty? Are you into Taylor Swift? I love Taylor Swift. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) We've never talked about this, so I I wasn't sure. I did go to the Eras tour. I went to the Chicago, one of the Chicago shows. Um, She played the Lakes, and um, I wish you would, for those of you that are wondering, the two of you that are wondering. But (laughs) it was a great show. Uh, That being said, there was a lot of stress leading up to it. So I'm sure you're going to get into some of that. Yes. So I think I, so I'm not a Swifty. I'm an aspiring Swifty. Like I, if I'm being honest, I probably, other than the big hits that everybody knows, I probably could not name a Taylor Swift song, but I, I want to be a Swifty. If there are folks like 
Someone send me a playlist. Someone tell me what to get into. I I feel like jealousy. I wish I was. I want to be part of the community. I'll send you a playlist. I got okay. you. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I respect Taylor Swift a lot, and I, 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 I want in. I just don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you were saying, like, if anybody who tried to go to Taylor Swift's Eras tour this summer or Beyonce's Renaissance tour this summer, I didn't make it to either of them. So like. Boomy. I didn't make it to Renaissance. I really did want to go to Renaissance, and I could not get a ticket. So at least yeah. I got one. Glass half, at least glass I got half one. full kind of situation. <laughs> My brother went with his wife, and there was a time where I was like, well, certainly, like, he's going to ask me to go. He's going to be like, Bridget you should go to Beyonce, take my ticket. And I was like waiting by the phone and the call never came. So yeah, I did did it. Heartbreaking. Uh, It was heartbreaking, but I'll I'll get them next time. So if anybody went to either of those big summer concert tours, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, y'all probably know already that the the ticket buying process was plagued with predatory online ticket sale platforms and resellers. It is so hard and expensive to get tickets that they actually end up selling out really quickly and then wind up on ticket reseller sites for thousands of dollars. And now the IRS is getting involved because they are putting more scrutiny on ticket resellers. So I actually did not know this. How it has worked before is that ticket websites had to send 1099 forms to anybody who made more than $20,000 through 200 or more ticket sale transactions in a year. And now that law has been updated as part of the American Rescue Plan Act, which lowers that amount from $20,000 to $600 regardless of the number of sales. And sellers will only need to pay taxes on the profit that they make. This is all part of Biden's plan to pump the brakes on the out-of-control antics of ticket resellers to crack down on predatory practices like tacking on hidden fees at checkout, which everybody hates. It's like it's like you'll buy tickets and then it's like, okay, the tickets are $50 and a $20 fuck you fee. So now it's $70. And then, oh, you use the internet. Oh, now it's $100. Like it completely adds up. It's 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 so predatory. Yeah. The the Swifties are powerful. I will say, I feel like this the past couple months have shown the, the Swifties are powerful. <laughs> that is 100% correct. You know, when you look at the average prices of some of these big concerts this summer, it is clear that, like, something is wrong. The Wall Street Journal reports that the average price for Swift's Eras tour was $1,095, and for Beyonce's, Beyonce's Renaissance tour, $400. Now, StubHub did say that, like, this might be partly due to COVID because the live event industry is, like, still bouncing back after, like, COVID shutdowns. I, I can't confirm or deny the, the, the truth behind that. That's what they're saying. And as you were saying, Joey, we really do have Swifties and their organizing and advocating to thank for this. After the Eras tour, Swifties reported not being able to buy Taylor Swift tickets, and then the site shut down. When it came back up, tickets were sold out, but they were being listed for exorbitant prices by ticket resellers. In a federal hearing, Ticketmaster blamed bots for this, and then later Ticketmaster shut down ticket sales in France for the Eras tour. Uh, And so... I guess Swifties were loud. They advocated that this was not okay. They wanted change. They wanted reform. And I guess the moral of the story here is don't mess with the Swifties because they have the Biden administration's ear. When the Swifties are upset about something, the Biden administration takes action. Do not mess with the Swifties. Yeah. Okay. Going back to the COVID point real quick. Please. That makes me real mad because, okay, I it's 2023 now. This, con- this tour has been 2023. 
the COVID pandemic is not over. It hasn't been over. That being said, concerts have been open since 2021. Like, I remember I had tickets to go to the Green Day Fall Out Boy Weezer show in 2021. And I decided not to go because I was worried about COVID. But I remember that concert still happened. So concerts have been happening for two years now and have been happening at these big stadiums with these big artists. So I, I think we're past the point where we can use COVID as the excuse for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I remember living through all of this, trying to get my... T- I, I, so I was on all day like literally spent 24 hours straight like trying to get tickets could not ended up like somebody I knew was able to get tickets so I was able to go through that but it was insane and um I gotta say even uh (laughs) most recently like I tried getting uh boy genius tickets in (laughs) in New York and it wasn't as bad as Taylor Swift but they also sold out right away it was also a whole weird thing with Ticketmaster. um disclaimer i am going to the show on monday i was able to get show i was able to get tickets last minute but <laughs> the the day of when the tickets went on sale like it was a nightmare and yeah they're a big band too but they're not as big as taylor swift or beyonce so it is just it is messed up right now i right. am glad something is being done the swifties are very powerful the Bayhive is very powerful yeah so I actually have a theory that kind of speaks to your point. It's mm-hmm. not tech related. This is just, I have no evidence. I have a theory that, I guess it's a little tech related. My theory is that the rise of social media has completely changed what it means to go to a concert. And it used to be that if you liked a musician or a live act, you went to see their concert because it's like, I gotta, I, I love whoever, I gotta go see them. I think that the rise of social media has turned concerts from just an experience to like a luxury event, right? Where people want to go, not even necessarily because they like love the band, but because it's like they want to flex for the gram that they were there. And so I think that like before you were just competing with people who were like fans of whoever. Now you're competing with everybody because going to a concert is just like, you know, a thing to do and that is making it this like luxury experience with these frankly like absurd price tags like the the, the price of concerts has like i, I don't I, don't ask me to back this up with facts because i cannot i've not looked into it i'm just like submitting this this theory off the dome but like the i think the price in my estimation the price has gone up and i think it's because people are seeing it as a luxury item and a luxury experience and Whereas it used to be like you you want you just wanted to go see the show. Now it's like, oh, well, do you want the backstage or like this experience or like that experience? And like, con- like live events places know they can just tack on a bunch of fees because people are already seeing this as like a luxury experience. You know, does that make sense? I don't know. No, I, I totally agree. And again, I don't have any evidence to back it up. Just my own experience. But yeah, like I I think my comparison here is Boy Genius, which is still a very popular band. And especially like now has sort of blown up with their new album. They're nowhere near like Taylor Swift. And the fact that I had like just as hard as time, just as hard of a time getting tickets for them as I did with Taylor Swift. Like it's gotten ridiculous. 
I love me. I you know we've talked about this. I love music. I'm a big music person. But that being said, like I feel like I don't go to a lot of concerts now because it's just so hard to get tickets. And I think Cozier was like the most recent one that I remember. He was like he put out his tickets for his tour, and I was like, I'm not even gonna bother. Like, there's no way I'm getting those tickets. Like, I might as well just sleep in that day when they go on sale at 8 a.m., um, which is early for me. Uh, but yeah, it's it's concert tickets have gotten ridiculous and it is not fun. Hopefully the Swifties can help us out with this and organize. I know they are a very powerful, unified force, as is Taylor Swift. I don't know if y'all saw, but Taylor Swift uh, on Tuesday, she posted a short Instagram post to her 272 million followers asking them to get registered to vote. And according to vote.org, the nonpartisan voter registration nonprofit, they got more than 35,000 regist- new registrations. And yeah, so she that she had a tw- they had a 23 percent jump over voter registration day last year because of the power of Taylor Swift. So when Taylor Swift speaks, people listen. When the Swifties speaks, Joe Biden listens. We got to think of like what else we want the Swifties to advocate for and be like, we need universal health care. Swifties, get on it. <laughs> I do think that uh, fandom and it is the rallying sort of force of the future, apparently. Um, <laughs> a contemporary political situation that I find fascinating is that whole thing when all the K-pop stands were like managed to mess up the the, the Trump speech that ha- was supposed to happen in like 2020. I think organizing young people through the power of fandom being obsessed with a particular celebrity that is so powerful and i'm so glad that that energy is being used for good right now and yeah we'll see what happens in the future i guess we love it joey thank you for being here a pleasure as always of course and as always listeners thanks for hanging out with us if you want more ad-free content check out our patreon at patreon.com slash tangody and we will see you real soon if you're looking for ways to support the show, check out our merch store at tangodi.com store. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangodi.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Edited by Joey Pat. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. 
When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you.